Welcome back to the Locust Grove Podcast. We are so excited to be back with you after a short break this summer. If you missed anything in our Sunday morning series, then you can certainly catch up on either our church website or our church Facebook page. In this week's episode, you're listening to this past Sunday's message as we continue our series, Tough Questions, looking at some of the difficult questions that people were asking Jesus in the middle portion of John's Gospel. This week, we're considering the second half of John chapter 8 and the third part of our message, Two Roads, considering the difference between the road of relationship and the road of religion. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by what you hear. If you want to find your place with us this morning, we're we're going to be in in John chapter 8 again. This will actually be our our fourth week in John chapter 8, and our third week really considering this um, same idea. We are in the midst of a series in this portion of John's Gospel called Tough Questions. And we're seeing all of these uh, seemingly hard questions being asked of Jesus. Now, I've said this before, and it bears repeating. It's not that these questions are difficult for Jesus to answer. They're not hard for Him. Uh, They're hard for the people that are asking them. And we see these questions coming from a variety of different people. Sometimes it's from uh, Pharisees who are in strict opposition to Him. Sometimes it's from His own disciples who are following Him. And in this context, in John chapter 8, it's actually questions from those who have just recently professed to believe in Him. But we see that that belief is really a shallow belief um, and not, not a real faith, not a genuine faith at all. That becomes more clear as we continue to study this text this morning. And so really the theme that has been evident here in the second half, middle and second half of uh, John chapter 8 is that there's this contrast happening between two roads. Jesus is laying out in this discourse with, uh, with these people who have just professed some sort of belief or acceptance of what He has said. He's laying out for them and really for His disciples and for the religious leaders that might be in the crowd that are still opposed to Him, these two contrasting roads. There is the road of a relationship with Christ and there is this road of religion. Now, If you were with us last week as we studied this uh, second portion of John chapter 8, we really focused our attention on this road of relationship and where the road of relationship leads. And now if you remember or if you weren't with us, just to sort of bring you up to speed, we saw that a road of relationship uh, with, with Christ leads to truth and to freedom. So now really studying the same text that we did last week, we're going to be considering this road of religion, the dangers of this road of religion, how deceptive this road of religion is, and some of the very strong language that Jesus has for those who have been deceived by Satan and captivated uh, by, by the schemes of religion. And so we're seeing that a relationship with Jesus is not based upon Religion, it's based upon faith and acceptance of of His Word, of Him as the Word, right? You'll hear me say this again. Uh, I said it last week, but it goes back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word is Jesus. And so when, when John talks about the Word, when Jesus talks about the Word in John's Gospel, He's talking about Himself. And so a relationship is for those who have accepted Jesus Christ as the true Son of God. Now religion in in this context is what people are using to try to get to God, to try to earn their way to God, to try to prove themselves as descendants of the Father. And what we're seeing happen here is Jesus says all of that is insufficient. All of that is just a road that we're going to see this morning leads to lies and captivity. And so now you already see this contrast. Last week, the road of relationship with Jesus leads to truth and freedom. This week, the road of religion leads to lies and captivity. So relationship leads to truth, 
Religion leads to captivity. Relationship leads, or excuse me, leads to lies. Relationship leads to freedom. And religion leads to captivity. So I invite you to join with me. Uh, we read a large portion of this passage of Scripture last week, but we're going to read it again because, um, because this is just a back and forth as Jesus is comparing and contrasting uh, what, what we're calling these two roads. And so I want you to join with me in reading John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on Him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? And Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. You already see this contrast taking place. Watch how it plays out through the remainder of this chapter. Verse 35, And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which ye have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. Jesus said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? If I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan, and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and ye do dishonor me. Verse 50, I seek not my own glory, there is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And thou sayest, if a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. How art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? The prophets are dead. Whom makest thou self? Literally, they're saying, who do you think you are? Jesus answers, verse 54, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, whom you say that he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. If I should say I know him, not I shall bear, I shall be a liar like unto you, but I know him and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. How hast, thou, how hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Let's pray together. Lord, this is indeed your word. We believe, Lord, that it is a lamp unto our paths. Lord, that it is the nourishment that our souls desperately need, that it is the direction that we so desperately desire. Lord, we pray this morning, that Your Spirit would illuminate the truth of the text for us. That we would be true to the preaching of this Word and to the understanding of this Word. That You would clear clear our minds, Lord. But Lord, not that we would just learn this intellectually, but that this Word would cut to the quick of our hearts. We would be transformed by it. Lord, that You would reveal the dark places in our lives shining Your light upon them, Lord, that we would be humble in repentance, that we would be convinced of our desperate need for You. 
we would be compelled to serve you more faithfully and boldly in the lives that you have called us to. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. So as I mentioned, we, we have this contrast here between this road of relationship with Jesus and this road of religion. Now I want us to really de- drill down on the road of religion. As I said, uh, we see here that the road of religion leads, leads to lies and captivity. Now, we have to make sure, if we're, if we're really going to get the most out of this text, we have to make sure that we situate it in its historical context. And so I feel the need to spend really quite a bit of time here situating this text in the historical context so that we can understand how it applies to our modern context. And so uh, before we can get any uh, true helpful application from this, I think we have to understand what's actually going on in the passage. Now, we talked about this last week, but it's so important to the context. If, if you notice at the very beginning of this, this passage, and actually even in verse 30, uh, before verse 31, it says that Jesus spake these words, many believed on Him. And in verse 31, we see who the audience is. We see who this conversation is with. Then said Jesus to, the, to those Jews which believed on Him. Right. So He is talking to those who have believed what He said. He's talking to that crowd from verse 30 who has believed Him. Now, I won't go into it again, but we talked last week about how John is really illustrating that this isn't a genuine belief. It's the second time we've seen this in John's Gospel. It's the same superficial belief that was present on the mountainside when Jesus feeds the 5,000. And so we see, we see a shift in the crowd's uh, demeanor. We see a shift in their attitude and even in their response to Jesus all in this passage. Now, I really want us to start by focusing on verses 33 through 34. So we know that the road of religion leads to lies and captivity. That's the, that's the clear overarching theme of what we have just read. But verses 33 and 34 sort of begin to clarify that where we see this truth that those who continue in sin are slaves to sin. Those who continue in sin are slaves to sin. Now, as Jesus is making this contrast to these who have claimed to believe in Him or on Him, as John says, these quote-unquote believers really become sort of incensed that Jesus implies that they were ever in bondage. right? They, they become sort of upset about this idea. They're frustrated by His words. You see, their, their reaction here is immediate, and it involves both this assertion and this denial. First, we see that they assert their identity, right? They're asserting that, they're, that they are descendants of Abraham. Right? They're bringing up their, their lineage, their, uh, their, their descendants from Abraham. Right? This is, the, this is the, uh, the Greek word sperma, which literally means seed. They're saying we are the seed of Abraham. But then they have this denial, this denial that they were ever slaves to anyone. Now this is why I think the historical context is really, really, really important here. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, if you know anything about the nation of Israel, you'll know that they were no stranger to slavery, right? They have been, they have been held in captivity as a nation a number of times. So as we see these comments from them in these two verses, on the surface, what they're saying biologically seems to be true, right? Uh, the nation of Israel are descendants of Abraham. They are truly the seed of Abraham. So that seems to be true. But this whole statement about never being in slavery doesn't make any sense because we know uh, it's a historical fact they were in slavery on a number of occasions. Even if it wasn't in the ownership type of slavery, they were under severe oppression from political powers a number of times, right? We, we, it started with Egypt. But it wasn't just in Egypt. After Egypt, it was Assyria, and then Babylonia, and then Media Persia, then Macedonia, then Egypt again, and then Syria. And now, even as Jesus is talking to them, they're under severe oppression by Rome. Maybe not slaves literally, but figuratively in many ways, they're slaves of Rome. They're answering to the Roman government. They're not a politically free people. Now, 
What helps us understand this is by connecting it to the event in which all of this is taking place. We've seen John has mentioned it a couple of times. It's, it's, it's the Festival of Tabernacles. Your translation may call it the Festival of Booths. It's the same thing. But what it is is a celebration of their deliverance out of Egypt. That's what's happening as this conversation is going on. The nation of Israel has gathered to celebrate their deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. So how in the world could these people say that they've never been slaves? Well, here's what we have to understand. They're not talking about a political evaluation of their history. Believe it or not, they're actually talking about a spiritual evaluation. They're not talking about political freedom. They're instead talking about a, a, a spiritual freedom. You see, this, this statement that they're making, this, this rebuttal that they're giving to Jesus is, is a statement rooted in their conviction that they are spiritual children of God. That's really what they mean by descendants of Abraham. Now, Jesus is going to tell them that they've got it all wrong in just a second, but they're talking about a spiritual freedom. They're, they're, they're talking about being spiritually free. Now, the fact that in our modern teaching of this passage, the Festival of Tabernacles is, is rarely the fact that it's rarely mentioned is, is really a commentary on our contemporary concern for political freedom. It's, it's a primary concern, if not the primary concern, for so many people. And it, it's a failure to see the contextual framework that John is presenting. They're understanding something spiritual here. They're just misunderstanding it. Right? They're, they're understanding that, uh, that, that their, their freedom is about more than a political freedom. Now that would be in contrast to the zealots who were also Jewish, but they were way more concerned with political freedom than spiritual freedom. But these Pharisees are understanding something of the spiritual freedom that they claim to have in God because they are descendants of Abraham. And so all of this begins to come just a little bit more clear. You see, their, their rebuttal to Jesus is not that they're politically free. Their rebuttal to Jesus is, no, we are sons of God. We are a holy people. We are God's own possession, according to Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Right? This for them is the test of being free. It's their spiritual freedom in the Father. And so... All of this is connected back to circumcision for the nation of, of, of Israel. Being circumcised, according to the rabbinic view, if you will, was the guarantee of escaping the bonds of Satan. Right? That's, that's, it's this guarantee that they are a part of the people of Israel. Right? And, and so they're, they're acknowledging that. Now they're celebrating their, their escape from the bondage of Egypt that we see in, in Exodus. But Calvin actually brings out an interesting point here that I think is very applicable to people in all circumstances, but especially to what's going on with the religious leaders. He says, The greater mass of vices anyone is buried under, the more fiercely and bombastically does he extol free will. Now, what he's getting at is that those who sin are slaves to sin, whether they realize it or not. And while... These, these Jewish people, these religious people that are claiming spiritual freedom, they're convinced that they're spiritually free though they're politically oppressed. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is pointing out to them, no, you are just in much spiritual bondage as you are political bondage. You are spiritually bound because you have not believed My Word. Right? Freedom is in me. Freedom is, is not in the law. Freedom is not in your religion. Freedom is not in your ancestry. Freedom is in me. You see, they had a problem where they would believe Jesus. They would believe what He said, but they were unwilling to confess Him as the Christ. They were unwilling to abide in His Word that we talked about last week. I mean, that was the command, that's, the, that's the command that they're responding to here. 
Jesus says, if you really are my children, if you really do follow me, if you really do believe in me, then you will not only believe my word, but you will continue in it. Then you won't be slaves anymore. And that's the comment that gets this angry response. The early church theologian Polycarp, he said, For everyone who shall not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is antichrist. And whosoever shall not confess the testimony of the cross is of the devil. And whosoever shall pervert the oracles of the Lord to his own lust and say that there is neither resurrection nor judgment, that man is the firstborn of Satan. We're going to see Jesus, Polycarp is just illuminating the connection that Jesus makes here. Do you realize the problem isn't necessarily the Jews' behavior? The problem is their failure to believe. Their, failure is, their problem is their failure to accept that Jesus Christ is the true Word. That's the problem. The problem isn't how many laws they are keeping or how many laws they are breaking. The problem is that they aren't accepting Jesus as the true Word. You see, the Pharisees thought their spiritual freedom was attached to their physical lineage. It was tied up in their religious practices. What they practiced religiously was because of their physical lineage. Jesus says your religion does not make you free. The only thing that can liberate you from spiritual slavery to sin is to believe my gospel, to believe my word, to, to believe John 1, 1. And so understand what's happening here. For Jesus, the ultimate bondage is not enslavement to a political or to an economic system, but it is a vicious slavery to moral failure and to rebellion against the God who has made us. These people were claiming to serve the Creator God. But in reality, their religion had led them into rebellion against God because they were refusing to believe and to accept His truth. And so for these Jews, the message was, the autocratic master of your life is not Caesar. The master of your life is self-centeredness. This is the problem. It's an evil and an enslaving devotion to created things at the expense of worship of the Creator. Now, this is why Jesus excuse me, would not let Himself be reduced to the level of this mere political Messiah. We saw that sort of play out back in John chapter 6. And it's not that, it's not that His claims have no bearing on questions of social justice. I want to be clear on this. Because this is becoming more and more of a problem and, and Christians are, are sort of taking the gospel and misapplying it more and more as, as we see social injustices happening more and more. It's not, that, it's not that the gospel doesn't have anything to say about social injustice. It's not that, that Christians, it's not that the church shouldn't be fighting against social injustice. That's, that's not what's being communicated here. But what we have to understand is that the pursuit of social justice alone is always going to prove vain and fleeting unless the deeper enslavement is recognized and handled. So let me just, let me just try to be very practical here. It's good for the church to speak out against gender dysphoria. It's good for the church to, to speak out against abortion. It's good for the church to speak out against slavery. All of these are social injustices. It's good for the church to speak out against racism. Right? It's, it's, it, and prejudice and all of the, these are all social injustices that the gospel does speak to. And it's good for us to speak against those things. We should speak against these things. But the point is, it won't do us any good if we don't understand the root. So all of these things, all of these social problems that we have, racism, gender dysphoria, the murder of unborn babies, all of these problems that we have, they're symptoms. They're symptoms. The problem isn't racism. The problem isn't murder. 
The problem is sin. Right? It's all a symptom of the same root problem, which is sin. And if we don't use the gospel to first combat sin, then we're not going to see any effect combating the symptoms. If you have lung cancer and develop a cough and go to the doctor and the doctor gives you cough medicine, you're just going to die with less of a cough. And so we can't take the approach that we're just going to fight back against the symptoms. Right? We have to understand that the root problem is always sin. And this is one of the problems with religion. Religion is constantly addressing the symptoms. Right now, this illustration, you've probably heard this before. This has been used a number of times in a number of different contexts. I've even heard it in Christian movies before. But sin really is like this prison cell. And the door is open. And we come and go as we please. And the prison cell is attractive, right? We get this temporary satisfaction when we enter the prison cell. We come and go, we get in the prison cell and eventually the temporary satisfaction wears off and we say, this isn't where I'm supposed to be and so we come back out of the prison cell. But the reality is one day the cell door is going to slam shut. There's not going to be an opportunity to leave. And here's why religion makes that so dangerous. Religion convinces us that we have the key to the cell. We don't have the key to the cell. Christ has the key to the prison cell that is sin. Religion tells us that, okay, I can indulge myself in this activity. I can keep doing this, and once it starts to feel a little bit overwhelming, once I feel like I'm going to get caught, once it starts hurting, once it, once it starts causing me some frustration, I'll just leave. I'll just go back to church a little more frequently. I'll start going to Sunday school again. I'll get plugged into a small group. I might, get, I might get super saved and like even go on Wednesday nights. And as long as I do those things, then I'm, I'm, I'm going to be free from the slavery of sin. But that is a deceptive lie of Satan. I love that you are here this morning. I would love it if you would come tonight. I would love it if you would come on Wednesday night. But it will not save you from sin. Only Jesus will save you from sin. Religious practice has no power to free us from the slavery of sin. You see, I don't think that these people really ever pick up on this. But it's, it's sort of this thing that Jesus is insinuating the whole time. Even Caesar, the leader of Rome, is a slave. Because all are captive to sin unless they are freed by believing in His gospel. Let's move on down to verse 37. So we, we see here <clears throat> excuse me, that those who continue in sin are slaves to sin. Now in verse 37, we see that there is no place for the Word of Christ in the heart of the slave to sin. Now, the reason for their hostility is given in terms of Jesus' Word. Right Again, we, I've already talked about this. When John uses this, when, when, when he's explaining that Jesus is using this term Word, Jesus is referring to His whole message. He's referring to the whole Gospel message. And it finds no place in them, or perhaps we might translate it among them. But the point is, they don't have any room for this gospel message. And so we see that religious privilege does not guarantee a right attitude to the things of God. Let me say that again. Religious privilege does not guarantee a right attitude to the things of God. Let me circle back to what I said just a moment ago. At the end of the church year, you could get the perfect attendance award. There could be a lot of participation, a lot of religious participation. You might consider that to be religious privilege, but it will not guarantee that you have a right attitude to the things of God. 
You see, even in the Old Testament, and this is, this is really important for our historical context that we're trying to bring forth here, physical descent from Abraham was not sufficient to determine the line of the seed, right? The real heirs of Abraham. Now, that's, that's, that's what these Pharisees are claiming, right? That they're descendants of Abraham, and so they're sons of God. They're, they're children of the Father. That's the claim that they're making. As if that's what has always been taught. But it's not what's always been taught. Paul actually brings that to the surface in Romans 2.28. He says, <clears throat> excuse me, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. That's Romans 2, 28 and 29. But it, this isn't just a New Testament idea. This is something that these Pharisees, that these religious elite should have understood. Jeremiah 9.25 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised. And ye uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab, and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. You see that? God says your physical lineage means nothing if your heart has not been circumcised. It's not a new idea that Jesus is presenting to these people that salvation comes by faith. It's not like in the Old Testament salvation was by works and then all of a sudden Jesus comes and salvation is, is obtained by a whole new means of faith. It's always been by faith. It's why I think that Ruth is one of the most important books in the whole Old Testament. Do you notice, do you realize what's happening in that whole context of the story of Ruth? She's a Moabite woman, right? And leading up to that, the problem is that the nation of Israel is marrying Moabite women. Right? I mean, they, they, they're intermarrying, they're, and, and there's this constant rebuke, this constant rebuke. Stay away from the Moabite women. I don't know, I guess the men in Israel were like, yeah, but you, have, have you seen them? Like, we can't, can't stay away from the Moabite women. And so there's like this constant, there's this constant rebuttal of stay away from the Moabite women, stay away from the Moabite women. Then we get to Ruth. What does God say about the nation of Israel? They're all idolaters. And what does he use? A Moabite woman to restore the nation of Israel. And we see later on that that Moabite woman is actually in the lineage of Jesus. It's always been about faith. It was never about physical lineage. That's, that's, that's what Jesus is wanting them to understand and what they're totally missing. I mean, John himself would later elaborate in 1 John chapter 3 that, that the, the, the fact that paternity in the spiritual realm is established by right conduct, but most importantly, right belief and transparent love. But yet in this passage in John chapter 8, far more significant is this fickle mob psychology that can only believe Jesus when, he, when His teachings do not clash with their prejudices. That's why it's so important to understand that Jesus in John chapter 8 is having a conversation with people who have claimed to believe in Him. Do you see that? In verse 30, they believe in Him. By the end, I mean, we're, we're just talking like, like eight verses later. They're angry with Him. By the end of John chapter 8, they've got stones ready to kill Him. That fast, they go from professing belief, ready to murder. And it's all because it was easy for them to believe what they wanted to hear. And it incited anger when they heard the things that they didn't want to hear. The things that contradicted the, the fundal religious basis that they had based their lives on. It becomes clear this is not conduct that attests spiritual descent from Abraham. I'll come back to this in just a minute. I don't want to spend too much time here. 
But to a lesser extent, this still happens so much today. We're on board as long as the message is making us comfortable. When, we, when God's Word compels us to do something differently, to change something, I know that's a dangerous word, right? This is the problem. It causes us to change something personally, corporately, in ministry, whatever the case may be. We become angry. And now like good religious people, we would never become angry at God or at God's Word. So you might become angry at the preacher or at something or at someone else. But you have to understand, Satan is using the same schemes today he was using 2,000 years ago. My way or the highway. You see, that's what's happening. John chapter 30, they say we believe. But they should have clarified, we believe so long as you are walking my way. We will not believe when you start walking in a way that is contradictory to our way, in a way that is different to how we want to walk or have always walked. Let's move on down, verses 38 through 41, and then even uh, verses 43 through 46. Because it really becomes clear now that religious captivity confuses truth. So in the rest of this section, we see this debate really centering itself, concerning itself with the word Father. Jesus identified Himself with the Father in heaven, but um, he, he identifies them, this, this audience, these people who had just complained, who had just confessed to believe in Him. He identifies them with the Father from hell, with Satan. Now, of course, the Jews claim that Abraham is their father. We've seen that here. They do that in Luke chapter 3 as well. But notice what happens. Jesus makes this very careful distinction between Abraham's seed, that's his physical descendants, and Abraham's children. I want you to, I want you to see this with me. Verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But that contrast with verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's seed. That's two different words. So you see what Jesus is doing. I know that you are in the physical lineage of Abraham. I understand that. But you are not children of Abraham. See, he's telling them this gospel was revealed to Abraham. He saw this coming. Abraham knew that I was coming. God revealed this to him and he believed it and rejoiced in it. And if you were truly his children, you would believe and rejoice in it as well. And so there's this distinction between seed and children. Galatians chapter 3, verses 6-9, through 9, it, it, it clarifies this even further as Paul writes to the church in Galatia. He said, Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. See? Of faith are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now I want to be very clear here because Jesus uses some really strong language. He doesn't just say you're lost. He doesn't just say you're confused. You are children of Satan. It's not enough for Jesus to say, no, you're not children of Abraham. You are children of Satan. Now, I want to be clear. Our Lord did not say that every lost sinner is a child of the devil. I think there's an important distinction here. Though every lost sinner is lost, and they are certainly a child of wrath and disobedience. Ephesians 2 teaches us that, right? 
Anyone who is apart from Christ is a child of wrath and disobedience. But this distinction, a child of Satan, seems to be reserved specifically for the religious. You see, both here and in the parable of the tares, Jesus said that the Pharisees and other counterfeit believers, that's literally what He's saying, they're counterfeit believers, were the children of the devil. See, 2 Corinthians 11 tells us that Satan is an imitator. And he gives his children a false righteousness that can never gain them entrance into heaven. Paul writes to the Romans. He's talking about these religious elites. He's talking about these children of Satan who have this false religious assurance. Here's what Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is for their salvation. He says, I want them to be saved. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You see what he's saying? This is why it's so, this is why John chapter 8 is so scary. They're religious. Paul even says they have a zeal for God. Paul persecuted thousands of Christians because he had a zeal for God. But it was without knowledge. It was without faith. It was without understanding that Jesus Christ is the Word. That in the beginning He was... That's going to become really clear in just a second when Jesus answers the big question of chapter 8. He was with God. He was God. Their zeal was without knowledge that Jesus was the Christ. This is scary because it's possible for us to go through life with a zeal for God and see that played out through religious participation and go our entire life with a zeal but no knowledge. Deceived by our Father, the devil. You see, Jesus is set in opposition. Right? The, he's set in opposition to the Jews. They the, the, seen. And that, stand, that stands over against heard. It's His Father against their Father. His speaking against their doing. And Jesus insists as always that His message is derivative. It is from the Father. Jesus has this unclouded vision of God and He speaks accordingly of the things that He has seen in Him. And these religious people, by contrast, have no vision. They are children of their Father and and, and these, these are the things that they are doing. And so, speak and do. This passage, they're both in the continuous tense. Jesus is referring, listen now, to His consistent message and their persistent practice. Isn't that scary? That their persistent practice of religion has prevented them from seeing His consistent message of truth. His consistence in relation to our persistence is the great indicator of which road we are traveling. Your persistence in religion does not guarantee that you're on the right road. Does your persistence match up with the consistence, the consistency of his message? What are we do? Why are we doing what we do? Why do we confess the things that we confess? I've got to move quickly now. I would draw your attention, verses 48, 52, and 53. We really see these accusations start. There's probably something that could be said here about Jesus' lack of appetite for racism. They make a racist comment to Him about being a Samaritan. He ignores it totally. He has no time for it. He does address this accusation that, uh, that He has a devil. right? And He just connects it right back to what He's been saying all along. But then there's this big question. Who do you think that you are to come and to tell us that we're not children of the Father? It's all happening in verses 54 through 59 where we see Jesus answer this 
big question. It's the climactic point in this chapter. And Jesus has this magnificent affirmation. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Again, I've mentioned it several times. John began his gospel by speaking of the pre-existence of the Word. Now, this I am statement does not go further than that. It can't go further than that. But it brings out the meaning of pre-existence in this more striking fashion. It says, before the great patriarch who lived centuries before, Jesus' existence went on. Now, His I tell you the truth, it's translated here in the version that we're using, verily, verily, it might be translated in your version, truly, truly. But all that's doing is marking out that this is an emphatic statement. Now, whether we translate this before Abraham was, as the King James translates it, or before Abraham was born, as others translate it, the meaning is still the same before Abraham ever came into existence. It's the aorist tense of the verb helps indicate this. It's a mode of being that has a, a definite beginning. It's, it's contrasted with one that is eternal. You see, I am, those two words, I am, is the fullest, has the fullest significance that it can possibly bear. It's a, it's a style of deity. It's a reference to His eternal being. This is a, it's an emphatic form of speech and one that certainly wouldn't be normally used in, in, in regular speaking. And so to use it was, was very recognizable to these people. They understood that Jesus was sort of adopting this divine style. And so when Jesus is exerting, asserting His existence, excuse me, in the time of Abraham, there's, there's no other way of understanding it other than He is the, this eternal being. He doesn't say... I was, He says, I am. It is the eternity of being and not simply that He has lasted through several centuries. It's the eternal being this expression indicates. Now, the Jews could only interpret this one way. Blasphemy. So therefore they take up stones to stone Him. It was the proper punishment for the offense of blasphemy. Leviticus 24 tells us that. In this angry state, these that had just believed a few moments ago are now so angry that they're ready to bring forward this immediate justice without trial, without any sort of legal process. They, they, they couldn't stand it. They couldn't wait any longer. They're ready, to, ready to, 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 to stone Him without sentencing Him. They find stones, get them in their hands in the temple, they're ready to pile these stones upon Jesus. Scripture tells us that He hid Himself. Now, in Greek, that's really passive. Probably should be interpreted, was hidden. And so John, I think here, is perhaps hinting that God protected His Son. It's, it's not that, that, that Jesus had some sort of superior cleverness that concealed Him. You know, He, he was able to sneak away. It's that the, the Father and maybe in some ways miraculously concealed the Son in this moment. Because time is important in John. I don't have time to go into it this morning, no pun intended. But time is significant. We see this constantly. The time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. There's a specific plan that God has put in place. And it's not until His time has come that Jesus will be lifted up. And in this moment, His time has not yet come, and so the Father conceals Him. But let's drill down, and let's close with some really practical application here. This whole discourse, the Pharisees have been responding with, we are, we are, we are. Everything Jesus says, no, but we are. No, but we are. And here at the very end of this passage, Jesus answers there we are with, no, I am. And so you see this distinction. For the religious, salvation was tied up in who they were. It was tied up in what they were doing. 
It was tied up in their practices. It was tied up in their traditions that had been passed down from generation to generation. The, the way they understood the law, the way they had added to the law. It was all what they were. And Jesus says, no, you've got it all wrong. I am. doesn't matter what you are or where you are or who you are. I am. You see, this is the great contrast and it's the problem of Phariseeism. When, we are, when, we are, when our understanding of the Gospel is clouded by a Phariseeical mindset, when we're walking this road of religion and we have convinced ourselves that we are righteous, our answer to sin is always what we will do. And we all have this to some extent. Even once you're saved, you still slip into this. There are plenty of times throughout the week when I slip up in sin. And I say, okay, my response to this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to spend 15 more minutes in devotion in the morning. No way I'll sin then. I'm going to spend 10 more minutes in prayer. I'm going to add another prayer time to my day to try to prevent sin. And you see, all I'm doing is I'm responding to my sin by saying, we are. Here's what I'm doing. Here's who I am. But the Gospel compels us to respond to sin in our life by saying, no, not I am, but Jesus is. Jesus is the answer. You see, the most difficult people to win to the Savior are those who do not realize that they have a need. They're under the condemnation of God, yet their trust, their trust is that their religion will save them. They're walking in the darkness, not following the light of life. They're, 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 they're sharing a living death because of their bondage to sin. And in spite of all of their religious deeds, they're dishonoring the Father and the Son. Do you realize it's these people that crucified Jesus? Jesus called them children of the devil. So I close by asking you this question, whose child are you? Is God your Father because you have received Jesus Christ into your life? This is John 1, verses 12 and 13 invites us to do. Or is Satan your Father because you are defending on a counterfeit righteousness, a works-based righteousness, not the righteousness that comes through the Father in Jesus Christ? If God is your Father, then heaven is your home. If He is not your Father, then hell is your destiny. What is revealed in John chapter 8 is truly, it's truly a matter of life and death. Thank you for listening to the Locust Grove podcast. We want to remind you to like and subscribe to the podcast so that you will be notified anytime we post a new episode. We pray that you have been encouraged and challenged by what you have heard in today's episode, and we look forward to joining with you again next week.